The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nakazawa. In this episode, we move out of Oaxaca and into the northern states of Mexico to talk about the past and present regulation and criminalization of mezcal production. First, we speak with Luis Loya, who owns the Agave Spirits brand La Mata in Nuevo León. He's also founder of Nación de las Verdes Matas, where he commercializes the spirits of traditional producers in Sonora, Nuevo León, Durango, and Tamaulipas. Instead of using the terms maestro mezcalero and palenque, Luis refers to the producers he works with as maestros vinateros and their distilleries as vinatas, which is how they are called in several of the states outside of Oaxaca. Later, we'll hear from Diego Mayegotia, first-generation mezcalero, about the community efforts of small-batch producers in the state of Durango. This podcast was originally recorded in Spanish. Our conversation with Luis is interpreted by Jesse Hoffman. My name is Luis Loya, and I am from Monterrey, Nuevo León. I've worked in the distillation industry for over a decade, but for a long time I was uninformed about mezcal. Like so many others, I saw it as a parallel to tequila. And it wasn't until I really immersed myself into the world of mezcal that I realized how much misinformation was out there. This is a big reason why I went into the industry, to travel the country and learn directly from producers. I first went to Oaxaca because as a northerner, I thought, what better place to start than the hub of production? And although Oaxaca is still the main mezcal producing region, we also have producing states in the north. The process is quite different from what you might find in Oaxaca, but I can tell you that the mezcal is quite good up here too. My goal is to compile the largest number of high quality distilled beverages from all over Mexico. Much of northern Mexico is vast and mountainous. Unlike in Oaxaca, where many working palenques are concentrated in close proximity, vinatas, as they're called in the north, are usually established far away from each other and from people's homes, and are often found in secluded locations. Nos podemos transportar a otra parte, al desierto o semidesierto. Then, if you go a few states over to the west, there's an area called Nombre de Dios in the state of Durango. It's a semi-arid climate with lava formations and volcanic soil, which gives the mezcal from the area a really distinct flavor. 
And here in Nuevo León, which is one state over, we have canyons, mountains, streams, lots of animals, and even bears. We are about 2,500 meters above sea level, and there's a lot of local tourism. Unfortunately, last year we had a very strong fire that threatened the entire area. And there's a chance we won't see a lot of mezcal production from Nuevo León for a while. We're doing everything possible, but a large part of the maguey's that we use for mezcal are wild, and we lost them. Northern mezcal producers have faced a number of other challenges over the last few years, including fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. But history tells us that these challenges go back even further beyond the last decade, or even the last century. Under Spanish colonial rule, laws were imposed to prohibit intoxication on the grounds that consuming alcohol induced people to criminal behavior and reduced productivity. Though Spain eventually abandoned some of these laws because of the high tax revenues to be made on agave products like tequila, pulque, and mezcal, elites found new ways to regulate consumption, primarily along lines of race and class. Despite these restrictions, however, agave spirits remained in high demand, and in northern states like Sonora, Chihuahua, and Nuevo León, distilleries were built in remote areas to avoid detection. Many distilleries still operate in these same locations today. Se sigue produciendo, se ha hecho por mucho tiempo. Los destilados son de otra, de otra calidad, dejan de ser tradicionales. So going back to Nombre de Dios in Durango, they have been producing mezcal for a long time. But I would say that the quality of the final product is no longer considered traditional. The area has seen a big shift in production recently, in favor of commercial profits rather than the historical taste that we all talk about so much. So that's been lost. What I try to do is preserve and maintain the quality and characteristics of traditional mezcals. And this goes hand in hand with the issue of prohibition and secrecy that has affected Mexico since its Spanish colonization. The government has a tight grip on production and distribution of alcoholic beverages to this day. Mezcal has a long history of clandestine production, hence the vinatas that are set up in environments far from city centers. Locals have produced their alcoholic beverages in this way for centuries. But prohibition hit particularly hard in the North in the late 1920s and 30s because those areas border the United States. And this actually leads me to another interesting point. There was a lot of commercial exchange between Southern US states and Northern Mexico. And I can tell you from personal experience that some people here in Nuevo León have closer ties to some Texans and Texan culture than the Central or Southern Mexico. So during the time of prohibition, there were a lot of Mexicans smuggling alcohol to the United States. Selling spirits to the U.S. during its own era of prohibition had lasting impacts on the region, some of which can still be seen today, almost 100 years later. Many Mexican families became incredibly wealthy during this time period. The border was not like it is today. You could easily cross with just a donkey and deliver booze to any buyer. In Oleon, for example, in the Bustamante area, there was a family producing mezcal under the name La Guadalupana that became rich through this custom, and they continue to produce to this day. On the other hand, however, producers in Sonora faced frequent army raids, and producers decided that it wasn't worth investing in proper infrastructure because sooner or later, the stills would be destroyed. They used recycled elements in their distilleries, and still do today, because they were easier to disassemble and represented a smaller loss if damaged. And even though there's no quote-unquote prohibition these days, there is so much control and regulation that it really affects mezcal production. 
Everything is just so expensive, from alcohol licenses, transportation fees, distribution taxes, and on and on. A majority of these small batch producers don't have every single permit. The only people that are able to afford these fees are the commercial giants. So this leaves all the independent producers in a tough situation. If all their hard work and money is getting funneled back to the government in the form of taxation and regulation, then it's not a surprise that the world of mezcal still operates under some secrecy. Apart from government impositions and economic hardship, the arrival of commercial beer played a major role in bringing about the disappearance of many popular and indigenous beverages. Let's take the city of Monterrey, for example. It was founded more than 400 years ago, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that it developed into a structured and industrial city. And just a little bit later, in the early 1900s, is when we saw the introduction of beer. Now, keep in mind that a lot of folks moved up north during this time to work in construction in various developing industries. And these workers were coming from southern states of Zacatecas or San Luis Potosí, which had rich mezcal cultures. So they brought their own maguez with them to the north, and they made their own mezcal, and they made their own pulque. But commercial beer came into the market with a force, with the backing of the big industry leaders in the area who had close government ties. This emergence made mezcal and pulque disappear almost entirely. There was no way to compete. And then, if we move ahead to around 1918, there was a decree in Monterrey that completely prohibited the consumption of pulque and mezcal. And that was the beginning of the end. Right now, someone here in Monterrey will know what mezcal is, but pulque? That's been erased from memory. In addition to the production and consumption of mezcal and pulque, there's also sotol. Sotol is a distilled spirit made from the dacelerian, or desert spoon plant. It's produced and consumed in the northern states of Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Durango, and was once one of the most common drinks in the area prior to the introduction of commercial drinks like beer and soda. Sotol had a much smaller footprint, but it was very important in certain cities. My father is over 80 years old now, but when he was 18 or 20, he was a cattle rancher, and he remembers riding really long distances and coming into contact with folks who drank sotol. He remembers drinking it, but when I ask him for more information, like where he was or how it was made, he doesn't know. But back then, there weren't delivery trucks for beer or whiskey. Each population had to produce its own alcoholic beverages. In Durango, there's a traditional genre of folk music called Canto Cardenche, that went hand-in-hand with the consumption of sotol. This a cappella style of music showcases three different vocal ranges singing in melancholy unison. Throughout the years, Cardenche music has started to fade from the world, right along with its accompanying drink, sotol. Another challenge to mezcal production and distribution is organized crime. Organized crime has been around forever, but the real issue is when it starts affecting the population. When regular people are in danger and are pressured to move away. The state of Guerrero is a prime example. 
The government is trying to fight organized crime. They're destabilizing the cartels. But then the cartels look for other ways to survive. So they turn to attacking civilians, assaults, bribes, kidnappings, ransom, you name it. So when I go to Durango, it's really difficult to bring this scout. We have to get up before dawn, have someone escort us through safe areas in the city, stop at police checkpoints, where we also run the risk of extortion from the cops. We have to always be on the lookout for any type of surveillance. If one of these criminals catches on that you have a successful business selling alcohol, they could start tracking your activity and impose fees for travel, or they can do much worse to you and your business. So the lack of accessibility compounded by the ongoing threat of organized crime has meant that many mezcal producing communities of the north have essentially been left to fend for themselves. Unfortunately, you just have to adapt, you know. These are relatively small communities, and more likely than not, someone you know or a friend of a friend has ties to some of these organized groups. So you try to work it out from within your circles. Ask for help from those you trust and just keep adapting as you go. Despite the long-standing obstacles to continued production, Luis believes that there are ways to help make change by supporting producers in planning for the long term. In terms of production, each area has its own problems. Like I mentioned, the fire here in Nuevo León has really affected us because we've lost so much raw material. But in other places, like in Durango, a huge brand just came in and essentially bulldozed smaller producers. People like this come in all the time. They are foreigners with a lot of money and they demand enormous production yields without understanding the timelines and dynamics of making mezcal. So instead of producing 200 liters or so per batch, they're being asked to produce 10,000 liters instead. Think about that. Think about the damage that will do to your land, to your maguez. In a matter of years, we will reach total extinction if we keep producing this way. So many people that work in this industry have grown up surviving day to day. There has never been time or money to plan for the future. So if you've lived your whole life just thinking about the present, and you're forced to go into overdrive for these massive industry folks, you'll be left with nothing. And I can assure you that they won't care about what happens to you after they've made their profit. We know that maguey takes a long time to grow, and it needs to live in certain conditions in order to be able to thrive. Many people rent plots of land every year to plant and harvest magueys. So one method that would greatly benefit producers would be to implement reforestation efforts. I try to talk to local producers to help change the way things are done. We need to move away from thinking day to day, because what will happen to us tomorrow? While these challenges certainly won't go away overnight, thanks to Luis and many others, there are efforts underway to ensure that Mezcal has a future in the North. Luis plans to travel throughout Mexico in order to expand this endeavor. Diego Maya Gotilla is an up-and-coming mezcal producer in Nombre de Dios, a city renowned for its natural beauty in the state of Durango. His work highlights the importance of community organization in the face of growing exploitation of wild agave for the production of mezcal. Our conversation with Diego is interpreted by Andres Jiménez. Mi nombre es Diego Mayagoitia. Me dedico a producir mezcal. Es una producción familiar. My name is Diego Mayagoitia. My family has been in the world of mezcal for a few years now. 
but I am a first-generation producer. We work with small batches, and most of our work is done between February and June. We're planning to launch our brand under the name of Celebrante this year. About 10 or 12 years ago, my brother got involved in the commercial side of mezcal. My dad has always been a big fan of the spirit, and I remember him always treating the bottles of mezcal in the liquor cabinet as something precious. And so, my brother got into the business of selling mezcal as a sort of hobby. And as time went by, we all fell in love with the drink more and more. And one day we said, okay, let's go all in. Let's actually work as mezcaleros. I wanted the whole experience of making mezcal. I wanted to immerse myself in the tradition. While with most other spirits, it's not uncommon for people born outside the tradition to learn to produce them, with mezcal, this is actually quite rare. Nombre de Dios is absolutely beautiful. It is a semi-desert landscape full of magueys, sotoles, cacti, sweet acacias, but there are also areas that have a lot of water. If you look to the mountains, you'll see livestock grazing and tourists wandering. And in terms of mezcal producers, there are plenty in the area. I've had the great pleasure of working with so many master vinateros, and I've tried to learn about the traditions and experiences. José Luis Colón is someone I consider my godfather of mezcal. He was born and raised in these mountains. Whenever we are out working in the fields, I'll point and ask, so what's that? And what's that over there? And what about this? And thank goodness he's really patient with me. But I've truly learned from hundreds of people in the industry. There's so much community in the world of mezcal. It's beautiful. In Durango, there are around 30 species of agave, the main one being agave duranguenses, which is also known as cenizo. But there are also plenty of other wild magueyes and plants that grow alongside it. It takes about 12 years for a maguey to be ready for harvesting. But most of the pruning is done by the cattle. In episode two, we spoke a little bit about a term called capón, which describes the process by which the emerging quiote of a maguey is cut or castrated, thus arresting the development of the flowering stalk and forcing the piña to concentrate additional sugars. So in this case, the cattle are the ones making the capón, which is fascinating. Yeah, so the cattle will eat at the tops of the maguey and sort of manage the growth of the plants over the course of two years. And it's the sort of thing that just developed naturally. It's like the cattle know where to stop eating. If the cutting were to be done by humans, sometimes we can get a little too excited and we'll try to get into every single nook and cranny and we'll end up cutting too much. But the animals don't take advantage of the plants like that. And the difference in the final product is actually noticeable. People will look at the cattle biting at the maguey and will say, that's going to be a really good one. There's something about the way they bite the plant that makes it heal differently. Diego, along with many other producers in the area, works on large communal lands known as ejidos. La mayoría de los terrenos todavía son ejidales. The process of working on an ejido is very structured. We do not directly own the land, but we work with people to determine a fair exchange. And in return, we care for the land. So for example, we go in and harvest what is ready and we leave behind what is still growing. This ensures that there will be a constant flow of planting and harvesting. And sometimes there's a need for additional support. 
So let's say that the road that leads to the ejido needs some work. We'll go in and fix it because we know that it's beneficial for the community as a whole. This approach is slightly different from what we've seen on the Palenques in Oaxaca. I asked Diego to tell me more about how his production is different. One of my favorite things is getting together with friends from Puebla or Oaxaca or other regions and talking about all the things we do differently, like everything from the name of the tools or the process itself can change so much between regions. For example, here we cut maguey using two different axes, the tumbadora and the peladora. The former is used to knock down the plant and the latter is used to peel the plant down to the piña. And another example is our ovens. Here we say that the oven sort of whines while cooking. Over the course of three days and nights, we essentially babysit it. I will set my alarm for every two hours and we'll check on the oven. If I hear a lot of whining, I need to calm it down and add a little more dirt. And then, during fermentation, we'll add some warm water to see if it starts to bubble. And then, the next day, we'll add even more warm water and we'll use a big stick to mix the whole thing to get rid of the bubbles. Then, we are able to look closely at the mixture and see if it needs more water or more maguey. It's like a sped-up way of fermenting and it's a real pride point for some of my teachers. But it's totally baffling to producers in Oaxaca who typically leave weeks for fermentation. We joke up here that one morning you're fermenting and that same evening you're distilling. Like Luis, Diego is familiar with the history of production in this region. While he was not born into the tradition, knowledge has been passed down to him from maestros like Felipe Rivera, another mentor that Diego holds in high regard. Felipe is an absolute maestro mezcalero. I remember him telling me about how they would always need to be near a river or a stream in order to produce mezcal. And when that water would run out, they would have to pick up and move on. Sometimes it would take them days to find another water source. And they would take eight or ten donkeys with them who would do a lot of the plant management. And as the raw materials run out, they would also have to move on. Although Felipe did not work during a time of prohibition per se, there were still other obstacles to consistent mezcal production, namely the fact that they had to move their vinatas as they used up resources. And their makeshift vinatas were not optimized for mobility. They made it work with what they had, but they were also working with much smaller yields than we do today. One vinata, known as venado, is actually still around and used communally. But for the most part, these old vinatas were really rustic and were made with a lot of ingenuity. Diego's family works seasonally and with very small batches. They will work with about five tons of material, whereas larger vinatas will work with up to 15 tons at a time. Other colleagues, he says, might work year-round out of necessity. El mezcal, la verdad es que en Durango está muy subvalorado. Mezcal here in Durango is an undervalued product with poor pay, which means that people in the industry can never stop working. They make large amounts of product for very little pay, and it turns into a quickly depreciating cycle. So to make some lasting change, we really need to focus on community support and consumer education. 
For example, we have an association of mezcal producers and marketers called El Cluster del Mezcal, where we work together to educate folks about better paths toward production. And we are starting to see more people interested in visiting our vinatas and learning about our process. This kind of tourism will allow us to educate consumers about the responsibility that comes with purchasing this product, about fair payment so that producers can dedicate time to reforestation, to the recovery of ecosystems, to maintenance for their truck, to veterinarian visits for their cattle, to schooling for their children, to the roof over their head. I think we are in a key moment right now to help ensure the future of mezcal in Durango. I've been seeing a big push toward commercialization and larger productions, and it's always from people who don't understand the limits and the fragility of mezcal. Like, yeah, I could give you like 1,500 liters of mezcal right now if I wanted to. Right now, that's possible. But what about in a few years? What will I be able to harvest if I wipe out my plants today? You need to know your limits based on your materials, not based on market demands. This is the only way I can see myself passing on the tradition to my children and my grandchildren. I want them to fall in love with this process like I have. The history and culture is so rich, and we need to not only keep it alive, but keep it thriving. Diego and his family will continue to work with these ideals in mind. In parting, I asked him what he would want consumers to take into consideration when purchasing and tasting mezcal from Durango. Soy, soy ferviente creyente de que en el mezcal no hay competencia. O sea, jamás voy a ver a un... I truly believe that there is no competition in the world of community-oriented mezcal. I will never look at a fellow producer and see them as competition. A lot of us work together and even sell together. Mezcal is literally art. Every single batch is different from another. And it's part of the beauty of discovering new flavors. There's something out there for everyone. So take the time to learn about the brands. If they are in line with your ecological, human and economic ethics, then that's the one for you. Thanks so much to our guests, Luis and Diego, for sharing their insights, and to our voice actors, Jesse and Andres. Saludos desde las tierras del mezcal, y hasta la próxima. The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, associate producer Rosina Castillo, editors Andres Jimenez and Max Kotelchuk, and researcher Olivia Mayeda. English translations are by Jackie Nowak, with editorial help from Carlin Crosby and Emily Vizzo. Cover art by Alex Bowman. Thanks to Las Nortenitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, Jinetes en el Cielo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant and Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, 
and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone Media at whetstonemedia.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.